Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hey, friends. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash bpshow. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Yep, looks like Gina Haspel is going to be confirmed thanks to some uh, spineless Democrats in the Senate. What do you say? Hello, everybody. On a Wednesday, here we go, Wednesday. Can you believe it? Wednesday, May 16, it is the Bill Press Show. Hello, hello, hello. Great to see you today. And thank you so much for joining us and being part of the program we got lots to talk about, as always, and uh, we'll uh, take uh, full advantage of the next two hours to bring you up to date on all the news of the day, uh, wherever it's happening, all around the country, uh, right here in Washington, D.C., of course, and all around the globe. Lots going on, and uh, so, some not-so-good news on, uh, on several fronts. At any rate, we will bring it all to you with our lineup of guests today. Uh, I'm going to be talking about uh, 1968, particularly this is the 50th year, of course, uh, coming up the anniversary, the assassination of Robert Kennedy, new book out about uh, Bobby Kennedy and his impact on those days and today still. John Allen, a good friend from NBC News, will be here as a, a friend of Bill and will be joined by Daniel Strauss from Politico to take a look uh, at a lot of the primary results yesterday. It was a big day for women, a big day for Democratic women, uh, a big day for progressives across the country, uh, from Idaho to Nebraska to Pennsylvania uh, and uh, Oregon as well. Lots of lots of important races to talk about. We'll bring you up to date on all of those and look forward to hearing from you as what you think about all the news of the day. Send us your comments, as always, on Twitter at BP Show. Get ready to go. We'll jump in in just a second. But first, this is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories making news. This is kind of a scary story. But yesterday, Harbor Freight Tools, which they make a lot of you know tools that you use around the house, they uh-huh. put out a recall for 
one million different chainsaws that they make. Now, they, they own a couple of other different brands, uh, one of them being Portland, another one called One Stop Gardens, another one's called Chicago Electric. So three different models, Portland, uh, One Stop Gardens, and Chicago Electric. They are recalling all of those chainsaws because they are a major, major uh, hazard for, for injury. They're saying that the problem is some of these chainsaws are continuing to operate after they've been flipped to the off position. Whoa. So even after you turn them off, the chainsaws are still running, and that's obviously not very good. So if you have one of those chainsaws, uh, you are part of the recall. Look into it and take it back if you can. Uh, Do you know that um, I once gave Carol a chainsaw for Christmas? <laughs> You old romantic, you. I know. <laughs> Did you really? Yeah, it's better than a kitchen appliance. Sure, yeah, yeah. I guess that's right. No, we had a lot of work to do on our property out <laughs> in California, and uh, so <laughs> she'd always complain about not having a better saw, so got her a chainsaw. There you go. Man, yeah. who says love is dead? A little skill chainsaw. There you go. Let's go out to California a for lady a lady chainsaw. Oh, there you go. There you go. Let's go out to California for a moment. We are seeing some really interesting numbers in California on STDs. The levels of chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis are the highest that they've been since the 1980s. In fact, uh, STDs have increased in California by 45% compared to five years ago. 45%. Wow. Uh, so that is obviously a big, big problem uh, in California. Why? Well, they're saying that more people are not using condoms, which it just seems like something that sort of a no-brainer these days. But no, no, they're just they're not using it. They're not stopping the spread of sexually transmitted. Is it just disease. California? California had the most had the biggest spike. Right? I don't have the numbers for the other states, but they were saying that forty-five percent jump in five years is pretty significant. Yeah, boy. I was in California last week. I got got out and back, escaped. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> they have a big sign. They should when you enter California now. Follow us on Twitter at BP Show. This is the Bill Press Show. Okay, you better put that Nobel Prize on hold. Uh, we may not need it after all, it looks like. <laughs> Things are falling apart pretty fast on the North Korean front. Hello, everybody. That's not funny, but I mean, it's funny about this nuclear, I mean, the Nobel Prize. Uh, great to see you today on this Wednesday, Wednesday, uh, no, November? No, let's not start there. May 16. Uh as we come to you live from, uh, yes, I know where we are, if I don't know what day it is, uh, Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, uh, and our little studio right here on Capitol Hill, just down the street from the United States Capitol, the Supreme Court. It's all within walking distance, the Library of Congress, easy walk. Uh, in fact, don't even have to walk. We can see them from here, and they can hear us from where they are. As we bring you our progressive take on the news of the day, joining you all across this great land of ours and all around the globe, online, on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show, on Free Speech TV, and uh, yes, 
Radio still lives out in the greater Chicago area on WCPT, the big progressive voice of Chicago, and statewide in Indiana on Indiana Talks. Uh, lots going on today. We need a little help to get through it all, and we've got it. Uh, and talking uh, 1968 with Rick Allen, who was in the uh, Clinton campaign and just has uh, helped edit a new collection of the words and the messages of the great uh, Bobby Kennedy uh, just out this week. We'll talk to Rick Allen about the importance of 1968 and its lasting and legacy. Uh, John Allen from NBC News here is a friend of Bill uh, with all the news of the day, including big anniversary tomorrow of the first anniversary of the Robert Mueller investigation. He took over just a year ago, and boy, he has had quite an impact since. Daniel Strauss from Politico will join us to bounce us through some of the uh, primaries uh, that we saw yesterday. Uh, and we might even start there uh, ourselves here uh, as, we, as we begin the program because some very significant primaries uh, acro across the country, maybe not as big as those we saw a couple of weeks ago, but uh, if you read the tea leaves, uh, some good signs here for Democrats yesterday, some very good signs for progressives, and some incredibly outstanding signs for women running for office. The big winners yesterday across the country were progressive, Democratic, pro-choice women. Uh, let's start with one that was very, very unusual out in Idaho. Uh, in Idaho, Paulette Jordan, uh, who was uh, not the front runner. Uh, she was not the establishment candidate, but she will be the Democratic nominee for governor in Idaho, uh, making national history. She is the first Native American woman to get that far, or Native American to get that far, and if elected in November, would be the first Native American governor of any state uh, in the United States ever, which is uh, remarkable. remarkable. It really is. So uh, good for her, Paulette Jordan, and good for the uh, people uh, of Idaho. Uh, nearby in Nebraska, uh, a very important primary in Nebraska, um, the establishment, the DCCC, Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, uh, had put up a uh, middle-of-the-road member of Congress, Congressman uh, Brad Ashford. They said, he's the guy we want, you know, right down the middle. Uh, and uh, the progressives in uh, Nebraska, uh, with the help of Our Revolution, Bernie Sanders' group, and with help of Bernie Sanders himself, said, no, there's this uh, other person we'd like a lot better. Uh, she hadn't held a political office before. Her name is Kara Eastman. Uh, Kara Eastman beat that uh, establishment member of Congress uh, yesterday. Uh, she's a real Bernie gal. What do you say instead of a Bernie bro? I'm not really sure. I don't want to insult her. Uh, but she's a real Bernie person, and she, she won by about 1,100 votes, I believe, which really shows, again, the value of the grassroots organizing. That's what made the difference out there, um, the Our Revolution people getting, getting their people out in that primary. Uh, that's uh, that's in Nebraska. Um, we have a quick clip of her. It's not great sound, but here is Kara Eastman with her supporters last night. We have reached so many people, and in the words of my communication director, Heather, touched so many hearts. 
reached so many people and touched so many hearts. And yes, uh, indeed, they did. Um, a whole slew of primaries for Congress and for governor and for Senate, rather, and governor in uh, Pennsylvania. Um, maybe the most important um, race we should be looking at is uh, Bob Casey, great senator, Democratic senator from Pennsylvania, up for his third term. Um, wasn't sure who the Republican nominee will be. We now know it will be Congressman Lou Barletta last night. We're going to come together, work together, because if we have a big election uh, in November, we got one more to go. <laughs> Uh, and he's a Trumper. Donald Trump had supported Lou Barletta, so that's going to be... Uh, By the way, he's a big-time Trumper. He's a big-time Trumper. He's not one of these yeah. guys that's just kind of like going along. Like yeah, no, he is no, full on the Trump train. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so it'll be uh, a real contest there between uh, uh, Bob Casey, um, great senator. I think uh, it's a favorite to get reelected uh, uh, with, uh, against Lou Bar- Barletta. In the governor's race uh, in Pennsylvania, uh, Tom Wolf running for re-election, Democratic governor. Uh, Scott Wagner, looks like, uh, not not looks like, Scott Wagner will be his uh, Republican opponent. For those that didn't vote for me, I'm going to work hard to earn your support as we continue our journey forward to defeat Tom Wolf. Uh, and again, we will um, be talking about some of the uh, other races in Pennsylvania uh, with uh, Daniel Strauss a little bit later in the program. But uh, it's kind of a repeat of what happened out in Nebraska. In Pennsylvania 7, uh, there was a middle-of-the-road establishment Democrat, the district attorney of that area, uh, John Morganelli. Uh, And John Morganelli, uh, uh, as a Democrat, running as a Democrat, uh, said he agreed with Donald Trump on immigration. Um, He was uh, anti-choice. And he had said, put out a few tweets, pretty, pretty uh, complimentary of Donald Trump on some issues. Uh, Susan Wild, who was a, just a Democratic activist, uh, ran against him with the support, again, of the Bernie folks and Bernie Sanders and our revolution. Uh, Susan Wild beat John Morganelli in Pennsylvania 7. I uh, said, no, 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 we want a real progressive. We want a real Democrat. Uh, and she will be the nominee there. So uh, women did very well. Progressives did very well in the primaries yesterday, and uh, it's looking good. Uh, by the way, you know, uh, and, in her case, in the case of Carrie Eastman, like Carrie Eastman was a social worker yeah, who just yeah. saw what was happening and said, I'm going to run for something, mm-hmm. right? And these are not lifelong politicians, not establishment no. Democrats, right. as you mentioned. They're just sort of like they really want to Both with the support of Emily's List, too. I should have mentioned yeah. that. Uh, and as we said, Emily's List training 30,000 women uh, this year for uh, for public office, for city council, state legislature, whatever. Uh, and, of course, some members of Congress, those two Emily's List people um, uh, came through yesterday. So um, good day for women, good day for progressives. I, I, I mentioned, started to mention in Pennsylvania, last point, um, Democrats way, way, way out there, Republicans, in terms of turnout, uh, again, the enthusiasm, the energy, the momentum is really on the Democratic side. Doesn't mean they're going to win every race, uh, but they're turning out in numbers like they've never turned out before. Thank you, uh, Donald Trump. Yes, indeed. The on the foreign policy front, 
Yeah, Donald Trump was already they they were building a, um, a a glass showcase down at the White House in the Oval Office <laughs> for the Nobel Prize. Right. Well, <clears throat> maybe they should stop <laughs> call the workers off today because it may not be happening. Yeah, uh, the much anticipated summit meeting between Donald Trump and Kim Jong Un set for June 12 in Singapore. Now may not happen. Yesterday, North, uh, North Korea said, hey, wait a minute. We stopped our missile test. We've already started dismantling one test site. And yet you, the United States, are out there with the same old military exercises with South Korea. We thought we were going to knock off the, uh, uh, the, the provocations. Uh, and if you don't, maybe we won't show up at the summit. They did cancel already another meeting planned between Kim Jong-un and President Moon of South Korea. Um, so they canceled that. And then they said that the June 12 summit is now up in the air because of these military exercises and also because Donald Trump keeps saying that the precondition for these talks, uh, remember they also released those three prisoners last week as a gesture toward uh, having some serious talks. But North Korea did say yesterday, if you think, if the United States thinks, uh, as, by the way, we've been saying on this show for a long time, that they are going to unilaterally destroy all their nuclear weapons, North Korea says then you might as well not even come to the table. Uh, here's the statement uh, uh, exactly as they put it out. Quote, if the United States is trying to drive us into a corner to force our unilateral nuclear abandonment, we will no longer be interested in such dialogue and cannot but reconsider our proceeding to the North Korea-U.S. summit. So it may not happen uh, after all. Um, the um, and, and by the way, a lot of people have also pointed out that Donald Trump might have maybe not been quite as enthusiastic about or crowing, although, of course, that's his style, uh, about everything that he'd achieved before they even the summit even took place, because this is at least the third time in recent years, I mean, not in the last couple of years, but the last few years, that North Korea has said they were, they were all ready to sit down for talks and then pulled out. So this is kind of a pattern of North Korea that they do all this provocation with all these missile tests, and then they appear to be ready to negotiate and to reach some agreement and to back down, and then they go back and <clears throat> become provocative and militaristic again. So this is a pattern we've seen before, and it looks like Donald Trump has walked right into the mousetrap. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Yeah, you know, I mean— uh, we've said before that is anybody who's who's the PR genius in this back and forth between North Korea and the United States. It has proven to be Kim Jong Un, not uh, not Donald Trump, and I, he's played Donald Trump like uh, like a violin. But the uh, State Department spokesperson yesterday, uh, Heather Nauert, she says um, they still are going ahead and planning on the summit. We will continue to go ahead and, and plan the meeting between President Trump and Kim Jong-un. 
You know, uh, so who knows what's going to happen? It could go either way. But let me tell you something. Uh, Donald Trump could really blow this. I still think they could have a summit, but I would not be surprised if we get back to a little rocket man today. Right? Yeah. And if that starts that that feud back and forth, then forget it. Look, I said when this originally was announced that it wasn't going to happen, and I felt like I might be wrong mm-hmm. <laughs> because it looked like we were moving in the direction of it actually happening. Now, it definitely isn't wasn't going like they missed the deadline that they originally set for this meeting for this summit. Right? They said it was going to happen. Yeah, but before they, this month. But that, but that's fine. Yeah, I'm just yeah. picking nits, they, right? They originally they said maybe May, but it wasn't pushed back that sure. far. No, 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 yeah. no. You're right. Yeah. You're right. But but uh, I I started to think, oh well, maybe this is actually going to happen. And now I'm sort of back and like, eh, it looks like it might not happen. <laughs> yeah. Like he could totally screw this up. Yeah. Right. Right. And, and by he, I mean Trump. I mean, he, he's the that's one that's right. going to screw this. And up. also, let's face it, we are dealing with a, a a regime that you can't trust to live up to their word. Uh, on the other hand, uh, <laughs> seeing what Donald Trump did with the Paris Accords and with the Iran nuclear deal, they're dealing with a country that you can't really trust to live up to its word yeah. either. So yeah. between the two of them, uh, this could easily uh, uh, e- 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 easily go south. Jonathan Carl from ABC News yesterday uh, was saying that it looks like there's no panic at the White House, uh, and yet, again, it could fall apart because they're unlikely to give up these military exercises. Nobody is panicking. I don't get a sense that anybody thinks that this uh, means that the summit is off. The big question will be, will they be willing to back down and, and, and give this big concession in North Korea of, of pausing these exercises? The exercises have been annual exercises. They happen every year, and they're described as being essential. So uh, hard to say. Hard to say what happens here. Hard, pardon me, hard for me to believe that these exercises are essential these are just, this is the United States military and the South Korean military. They do this as a show of strength. They do this just like um, little kids playing with their toys every year. I, I hate this. Every time I see these, they send in like the entire fleet and all these bombers and fighter planes and everything to do these military exercise. I always wonder what it costs you and me for them to be playing these games. Uh, and I'm sorry. Um, to be too much of a skeptic, I can't believe that these uh, military exercises, having just conducted them last year, are so essential again this year. Uh, and they could have put them on hold, knowing that that might ruffle the feathers toward any uh, summit between the leader of North Korea and the leader of the United States. We'll see what happens on that meantime. Yesterday, uh, Gina Haspel, she sewed up the votes that she needs for her confirmation uh, as director of the CIA, something that uh, I believe should never happen. Uh, I will stand with John McCain. I wish more Republican and Democratic senators would, who said very clearly, John McCain, who did spend five and a half years in a Vietnamese prison, who was tortured over and over again, um, who was offered, remember, to be released at one time because his father was an admiral and they thought... Uh, that maybe that would uh, uh, help their standing with the United States by releasing the son of this admiral. And John McCain said, no, unless you release all Americans, all my fellow Americans here, uh, I'm not, I don't want to get out early. Uh, John McCain, who said, based on his experience, that torture is immoral. Torture does not work in getting good information, which some people insist it does. John McCain 
having been there, says it doesn't. And thirdly, he said uh, nobody who was involved in a, running a torture camp, uh, a torture factory, should ever be considered to be head of the CIA. But Republican senators didn't listen, and neither have too many Democrats. We have seen uh, Joe Manchin, John Don- Joe Donald, Joe Manchin, West Virginia, Joe Donnelly from Indiana said they were going to vote for her regardless. Uh, And yesterday, a big disappointment to me, Senator Mark Warner from Virginia, he wrote a letter to Gina Haspel saying, I really want to know where you stand on torture. She wrote a letter back saying it was the wrong thing to do. We never should have done that back in the Bush years, and I would never do it again. And Mark Warner said, based on that letter, he is going to vote for her. And very quickly, Senator Heidi Heitkamp from North Dakota said she would vote for her, too. That gives Gina Haspel all the votes she needs. I don't get it. I don't get it. If she says today, we never should have done that, why did she accept the job of running this torture camp in Thailand in the first place? How could she have taken that job? And by the way, there are emails that show that she expressed at the time no regret for doing that job. She didn't say she was ashamed to be there. She oversaw waterboarding. She oversaw other forms of extreme, what, are they, what was the, what's the phrase? Uh, enhanced interrogation. Enhanced, not extreme. Enhanced interrogation. Although it is extreme. It is extreme. And she did all of that, and now she says, we never should have done it in the first place. She has still expressed no regrets for her own role in it, nor apologized for it, nor said it was immoral, nor said it was wrong. And remember, she also destroyed the evidence of the waterboarding so that nobody could be held responsible. Uh, I mean, the point is she's got the votes, but I hate to see her get the votes with the support of Democrats. This is a time a time for Democrats to stand up, stand up, not just for the Democratic Party, stand up for principles, stand up for human rights, stand up for decency, stand up for international law, and don't cave in to Donald Trump and don't cave in to Gina Haspel and don't cave in on this and don't give up, give in rather on this insane theory that somehow their reelection would hinge on whether or not they vote for Gina Haspel. Who the F cares? This this right? really broke my heart yesterday. Not that I think that Mark Warner is a really reliable, uh, no, progressive guy. But he's a decent guy. Sure, totally. Yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. But like he could easily vote against her and be reelected in Virginia as long as he wants. To your point, they should be able to Democratic politicians should be able to go up there and say, you know what? We don't torture. We don't torture. We as America. Why is that hard? We don't torture. We are a party or we are people that do not torture. Yeah. And we're not going to condone people moving up in the in the ranks who participated in torture and that's why i'm not going to vote for gina haspel and if that's not enough for you if you're a democratic politician and you don't think that's enough to to, to sell to your voters just say you know what john mccain was tortured john mccain says he can't vote for her yeah. and i'm with john I McCain. Stand with john mccain and i'm with john mccain right. and if that's not enough for you then just get out of the business <laughs> yeah. just get out of the business because we really are i mean you and i've been doing this show for a long time we were doing the show during the torture years of George W. Bush. Mm-hmm. And here we are again. We've got saber rattling in the Middle East. You've got torturers moving up in the ranks 
to lead the country, and you have Democrats caving and allowing it to happen. And you would think that this would be the time they could just really stand together and put that behind them. You think so? No, we're not going to go back there. This brings the CIA right back to the times of Dick Cheney and waterboarding and enhanced interrogation and, and the dark sights and all of that stuff. Uh, and this was a chance to break with that tradition. Democrats, Democrats will be held responsible for going back to it. Um, by the way, on on the uh, John McCain issue, uh, Mitch McConnell yesterday saying um, that he thought that the woman, Kelly Sadler, at the White House should publicly uh, apologize for her remarks about John McCain. Here's Mitch McConnell. The person who said that should apologize and should apologize publicly. Uh, John Kennedy, uh, however, a Republican from Louisiana, said, you know, the Republican senators met with, uh, again, talk about CS. Uh, They met with the president, had lunch with the president yesterday on the Hill. uh, And as John Kennedy says, the the, uh, issue of John McCain never even came up. This wasn't that kind of meeting. And and I've been as clear as I can be how I feel about the comments and the need for an apology. What did you feel about those comments, Senator Kennedy? The comments were, were rude, crude, and unconscionable. And, and I think the, uh, the, the staffer ought to apologize and the administration ought to apologize. Don't you think that you got the Republican caucus and somebody at the White House has really insulted and demeaned a member of their caucus, one of their colleagues? And they're meeting with the president. Don't you think somebody there would say, Mr. President, you owe us all an apology. And you owe Senator McCain an apology. Don't you think? And the fact that they would not even raise the issue says a lot, doesn't it, about, about the backbone among that gang. We yeah, just talked they... about the lack of backbone among the Democrats. Think of the lack of backbone among the Republicans. Yeah, we know what they really care about. We've got Donald Trump. He's right there. Yeah, It's his person who insulted one of their colleagues. Oh, we didn't have time to talk. She has not apologized. Donald Trump has not apologized. In fact, they've said they don't want to talk about it because you should be able to say anything you want in a White House meeting and and nobody should ever know about it. It's an internal matter. It's an internal internal matter. matter. Yeah. I can't I can't believe they would uh, they would take let, let that let that opportunity and 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 let it pass. But this is but, just kind of where we are, right? This is Trump's party now. This is not like Donald Trump hasn't, you know, taken over the Republican Party and they're still fighting against him. Like they have all caved. All the Republicans have caved and they now realize this is Donald Trump's party. Indeed. Yeah. Right. Uh, And they proved it. They proved it uh, yesterday. Uh, And one other big item in the news. Yes, indeed. uh, There was an effort uh, the motion at the U.N. yesterday to uh, condemn Israel for the use of uh, live ammunition, open fire on the protesters at Gaza, and to begin an internal invest- an investigation into whether that use of force was necessary. Uh, that was blocked by the United States. Ambassador, our ambassador to the UN, Nikki Haley, saying, first of all, that the opening of the embassy in Jerusalem had nothing to do with what was happening at the Gaza border. Those who suggest that the Gaza violence has anything to do with the location of the American embassy are sorely mistaken. Mm-hmm. And in fact, she said the whole blame is on Hamas, not on the Israeli Defense Forces. 
The same loudspeakers are used by Hamas to urge the crowds to, quote, get closer, get closer to the security fence. Right. Uh, and she praised Israel for the restraint that it showed at the border. She actually said, quote, at the Security Council meeting yesterday, get this, quote, no country in this chamber would act with more restraint than Israel has. Wow. 60 people killed um, with uh, live ammunition um, by Israeli Defense Forces, 60 protesters at the border, uh, and some 1,300 wounded by gunfire, about some 2,400 injured in the whole mess. But um, Becky Haley said it had nothing to do with the opening of the embassy and praising Israel for acting with such restraint. The United States and Israel, the only two countries in the planet who don't think that was an excessive use of force. A quick break here. As we told you, 1968, think about it, 50 years ago, what it year it was, and about to come up to the tragic anniversary of the assassination of the great Robert F. Kennedy. A new book out about Kennedy's uh, legacy, his words, his message, and how it still resonates today. Rick Allen. One of the editors who put that book together is going to join us here to talk 1968 and today's politics as well. We'll take a quick break here. The Bill Press Show, Wednesday, May 16, and we'll be right back. This is The Bill Press Show. And here we go on this Wednesday, Wednesday, May 16. Great to see you today. Thank you for being part of the program. It's The Bill Press Show coming to you live from Washington, D.C., our studio on Capitol Hill. Uh, but joining you wherever you are in this great land of ours, uh, any way we can, online, on the radio, and on television. But we're brought to you today by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, those good men and women of the Teamsters Union, working with President Jim Hoffa, making a difference. Uh, we all live better because of their work. Check out their good work at their website, teamster.org. Uh, and... Um, we thank them for their good work and their support of the program. It is uh, 2018. Yes, a momentous year. One of the most, uh, I think, incredibly um, momentous years in American politics. 50 years ago, 1968, and we're coming up to one of the tra most tragic events of that year in June, June 6th, the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy, a new book out about uh, the words and the legacy of Robert F. Kennedy, RFK, words for her times. Good friend of mine, longtime uh, friend from California. We've been through a lot of political battles together. Uh, Rick Allen, who is part of the Clinton administration with AmeriCorps, uh, helped put this book together and joins us in studio. Hey, Rick, it's good to see you. Good morning. It's We're great both to be still here. doing strong, huh? Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> I haven't slowed down. Uh, we've been at the, this for a little bit of the show already this morning, so we always uh, generate uh, a little, stir up a little dust along the way. Uh, Peter, some Twitter comments? Yes, there? indeed. Yes, indeed. Remember, we are Before on, we move on to RFK. We are on Twitter, at BP Show, at BP Show. Uh, a couple different comments about the uh, uh, CIA director, soon to be confirmed CIA director, Gina Haspel. Uh, Joey says, the more laws you break, the more pay you make. Thanks a lot to, <laughs> thanks a lot to Democrats for abandoning our morals. Just say no to the GOP. Roxanne says, Gina Haspel has already said in testimony she would not have CIA agents do torture again. She would just outsource it instead, probably. 
Uh, and Vicki Ann says the whole lot of them should be primaried. This is shameful, shameful, shameful. And KG says spineless Democrats are pandering to a mythical electorate or they are lying about their reasons for voting for more torture. If you want to reach out to us, we are on Twitter at BP Show, at BP Show. Uh, I should feel uh, lucky today because nobody called me an a-hole. Yeah, not today. <laughs> not today. Not a rare day that you didn't get called a name. <laughs> the yeah. morning's still young. Exactly, right? right. Yeah, it's coming. It's coming. You know, um, 1968, right? Think about it. Martin Luther King, Ken, I mean, LBJ saying I'm not going to run again. Martin Luther King assassinated. Bobby Kennedy assassinated. I mean, the Chicago Convention. It hasn't been a year like that. It, it was an incredibly divisive year. Country was at least as polarized as it is now, but more violently so. So there are echoes of the kinds of circumstances that we find politics in today. And you find in Robert Kennedy an extraordinary voice who set very clear standards and expectations sketched a vision that really was inclusive and inspiring and talked about reconciliation in direct ways that were working throughout that brief primary campaign that he ran for president. Yeah, it makes you yearn for a figure like that today, doesn't it? Very much so. Very much so. I mean, it's, it's so lacking. You're right. This country is so divisive, polarized like, like never before, but I don't see any one figure like with the voice that Bobby Kennedy had at that time and that, that, I, I that don't, ability I, to bring people together. I don't had. either, although, again, having spent so much time as I have over the intervening years going through his speeches and policies, part of what Robert Kennedy stood for was the concept of ripples of hope, of individual actions to make change. Mm -hmm. And I think he would have been inspired and, and proud of efforts like the Parkland students to make a difference. He always believed that revolutions began with the young. He defined that as a state of mind rather than, than years on, on uh, the chronological clock. But those efforts uh, and, and smaller community-based efforts really revitalized democracy and we may expect too much to be looking for the next RFK. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I have found it useful to look back to the original RFK and think about what his words, his policies, his vision for America has to say to us now 50 years later. So I had dinner Saturday night with a good friend who was press secretary for Bobby Kennedy way back then. Uh, as, and when he was attorney general. Um, and I've heard this argument before, but he was talking about um, this big question, what if, hmm. what if when he finished his remarks at the Ambassador Hotel, he had turned right instead mm -hmm. of turning left? And apparently there were, he started to turn right to shake hands with the crowd. There were so many people there, and somebody said, no, let's go this way. Maybe I have the directions wrong, but let's go this way duck through the kitchen. Yes. What if? Well, I mean, it, it I think we all believe America world, right? would, would have been a very different place. And a better place. And a better place. Uh, it's very hard to do what ifs in history. Uh, the likelihood of success 
in a uh, convention circumstance where primaries were not the, uh, the method for picking the majority of convention delegates, you still had control by, by party leaders. Kennedy yeah, needed right. he still those could primaries. Have, he still could have lost that convention. He could, he could have. He could have. Hard and, to and believe. He it, could have. Yeah. Well, we we look today back at that history and see him as such a shining example. The electoral math, the convention math, was more difficult. I believe he would have prevailed. I've I've seen the preliminary delegate counts, and I know mm-hmm. how they were going to add up to success. And Kennedy's have, have, have traditionally been quite good at organizing conventions, mm-hmm. including Robert Kennedy as his brother's campaign manager. But in the general election, I believe very strongly, had Robert Kennedy been the party's nominee, he would have defeated Richard Nixon. And clearly the country would have been very different. Yeah. Um, the Maybe one of the finest moments for Robert Kennedy that I can remember and remember reading about was um, the night that Martin Luther King was assassinated. Yes. Where he was in Indianapolis, I believe. Yes. Correct? Yeah. You have to... Tell us about that. This is April 4th, 1968. Uh, it is a different time in the sense that you don't have cell phones, you don't have 24-hour news. <clears throat> so Robert Kennedy had heard when he was leaving his previous stop that Dr. King had been shot. The news had not broken publicly. When he landed in Indianapolis, he was told that Dr. King had indeed died. Mm. He was also told a couple of things by the mayor of Indianapolis, Richard Luger, who went on to be senator, Mm -hmm. and by the police chief who had the unlikely name of Winston Churchill. (laughs) A a couple of things. First, that the rally, which was to take place in, in the ghetto within Indianapolis, that the attendees did not know that Dr. King had been shot and did not know he had died. Whoa. And that... So this was a one of his campaign rallies? This was one of his rallies that oh, had already been scheduled. planned. Scheduled. That's yeah. correct. Yeah. Sorry. And, yeah. and it was a normal campaign rally, celebratory in nature. And the police chief said, we cannot guarantee your safety. And indeed, if you insist on going against our recommendations, we will not provide police support. You'll go in there... Uh, without that kind of coverage. And Kennedy turned to his advance man, a young civil rights icon, John Lewis, who went on to become congressman. And John recommended that he, that Kennedy go. He thought it was important that that community hear him at what was clearly going to be a turbulent time. So Kennedy went ahead with Lewis and delivered remarks that were entirely extemporaneous. He had a sheet of paper in his hand. He never looked down at it. They are among the most eloquent he ever delivered or anyone has ever delivered. But you can hear, we have on our website, rfkspeeches.com, we have the video of that moment. Mm. And at the beginning Mm. of it, when he brings the sad news that Dr. King has been shot and killed, you can hear the screams of the crowd uh, and and the utter shock uh, and horror. The results of that speech were as memorable as the occasion itself. That night, over 110 American cities and towns rioted. Mm-hmm. Tens of millions of dollars of property damage, 30 people killed, many hundreds injured. Indianapolis stayed quiet. 
And a lot of that credit goes to Robert Kennedy, who spoke so movingly about nonviolence from the perspective of having been, he and his family, the victims of violence in the death of his brother, President John Kennedy. That gave a kind of credibility that I think was unmatched. And he also represented to that community someone who was focused on improving conditions for all Americans and particularly for African Americans. Yeah. Again, if you keep thinking, I uh, hear what you said about these, uh, these movements, grassroots movements, particularly the young people, and I, 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 I t- totally agree with you. But it's, it's, we miss someone of that stature and that moment, you know, um, uh, so much today, and uh, that uh, that the presence that uh, RFK was able to fill. What are planned? What events are planned this year for, uh, other than the release of your book? And this, by Thank the way, you. this is out now, right? Yes, yeah. sir. It is. Came out May first. RFK out May first. Uh, we'll have a link up on our website, but also, you know, wherever you um, go shopping for books, uh, your local independent bookstore. We hope. Uh, and of course, on Amazon and uh, and other websites. So, uh, are there events scheduled around uh, June sixth? There are. The are principal event will be here in D.C. at Arlington Cemetery on June sixth. The family is planning uh, a celebration, a memorial for Senator Kennedy. Uh, I've had the opportunity to work with them on the planning, mm-hmm. and I know it's President, going to be President Clinton's going to be there. That's yeah. correct, President Clinton will deliver the principal remarks, but throughout the brief and, and I think very moving memorial, there will be excerpts from Senator Kennedy's speeches that are inspiring and that point to both the difficulties of his time and ours, but as importantly, focuses on the future and what we can do together to better the nation. Yeah. In in putting this together, how long did it take you? I mean, well, in one sense, in 50, 50 years. 50 years, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah the question I, answers itself, I, I guess, I right? I really yeah. had been thinking about this a very long time. In 1993, Ed Guthman and I brought out the uh, initial version of uh, this book. Uh, uh, tell our viewers and listeners who Ed, Guth- uh, Ed Guthman was. Ed Guthman was Wonderful an American guy. hero, uh, decorated World War II veteran, Pulitzer Prize winner at 30, uh, an extraordinary investigative reporter, Robert Kennedy's press secretary in the Rackets Committee in uh, in the Department of Justice and helped run his New York campaign, and then a legendary journalist, Los Angeles Times, Philadelphia Inquirer, uh, and at the Annenberg School at USC. So Ed and I, I, I told Ed about my vision for this book, and he made it possible. Uh, and as you'll read in the acknowledgments, I owe a great deal not only about this book, but in general to him. Uh, and I promised him before he passed away in 2008 that I was going to get out uh, a new edition. And uh, now was the clear time to do so. And I'm very uh, grateful to the William Morrow HarperCollins folks for uh, mm-hmm. giving me that opportunity. Uh, and so, in putting these together, you have to you have to choose, you know, of great wealth, right? Yes. Of speeches and comments and interviews and and, and all of that. Uh, the ones that you thought were the most 
powerful, the most lasting, right? Um, uh, in addition to that, Indianapolis, what are some of the ones that a couple that you think are? Well, that, let me back up a step yeah. to just describe what the book is. The centerpiece of it, the core, are Kennedy's own words, which I thought were important to get back out in front of the public. You can learn a lot about Robert Kennedy from wonderful biographies. Very tough to learn about Robert Kennedy from Robert Kennedy. So the, the first push was get out the best of the best. Ed and I wrote the narrative weave around those excerpts so you see Kennedy's life and times and therefore the context is provided for his words. And then the front of the book are a series of brief, half page to page, reflections on Kennedy's legacy by notable leaders mm. from around the world. We have four American presidents, five Nobel Peace Prize winners, winners of Pulitzer Prizes, the winner of 22 Grammy Awards, mm. really interesting collection of folks from around the world, very personal reflections of what Kennedy meant to them and meant to the world or to the United States. So in selecting, in having that kind of context for all of this and looking through the more than 300 major speeches that Robert Kennedy gave in the course of his career, we wanted to have the uh, capacity to show the, the, the scope of his life. We start the book with byline pieces he wrote for uh, the Boston Post uh, from in 1948 at the age of 22 from the British mandate in Palestine. Because he the, was a reporter. He was a days. reporter. Yeah. And, and that actually it's, is it's an important just, point to make when you're talking about his speeches. He was not a natural speaker. He was a very natural writer. Words were extremely important to him. He worked over them, and even when he had aides who were helping draft his speeches, the process was extremely intensive because he wanted to convey things with clarity. I think in terms of your question about the best of the speeches, I pair the Indianapolis extemporaneous remarks <clears throat> with his comments the next day in a prepared, briefly prepared, but prepared yeah. speech in Cleveland on April 5th about the mindless menace of violence. And when you put those two speeches together, they're really exceptionally powerful. I also have always loved his Cape Town speech, which is probably one of the most quoted two years to the day before he died uh, in a South Africa that was then in the kind of deepest period of apartheid. Uh, an electrifying speech in a brief but electrifying trip uh, throughout South Africa that he and Ethel Kennedy uh, took that was important to so South African history. But there is also, uh, yeah. in, in, at the University of Kansas, uh, a wonderful reflection on how a nation should define its greatness, not by GNP, mm -hmm. but by what really makes us proud to be Americans uh, and and a real focus beyond the notion of material success alone. And those are all collected and reflected again in uh, RFK, his words for our times. So what do you see to today uh, the lasting impact of, uh, of Bobby Kennedy on our times? I think a number of, uh, of 
uh, characteristics that are important for us to recapture and aren't entirely predicated on an extraordinary single leader. The first is language itself. I think as you read his speeches, you are really struck by how beautiful the language is and how elevated it was. In those extemporaneous remarks in Indianapolis, Kennedy quotes Aeschylus, mm-hmm. the Greek tragedian. I, I, I honestly would bet you that neither of us could think of an American politician now who mm. knows Aeschylus, much less would quote him at a campaign rally. But what that showed was that Kennedy never talked down to his audience. He felt that if his uh, mission was to inspire and elevate, part of that was the use of language itself. The second was a clarity about where he felt the country should head and a willingness to be confrontational, but confrontational with the powerful and confrontational with other points of view in a, uh, in a circumstance of, of great respect. And so throughout the book, you'll see circumstances of him taking on uh, the powerful who he thought were impeding American success, but also debating audiences with different views. And he was exceptionally direct in, in that approach. That's very different than appearing before carefully uh, selected crowds of your own supporters and attacking at a distance, kind of punching down Mm -hmm. uh, at at who you characterize as opponents. I think the other aspect is related to his policies. Kennedy is considered to be progressive, and indeed he was on so many issues, but he— refused to be pigeonholed as what he thought constituted the liberalism of his time. And so that kind of fusion of government efforts, private sector, individual responsibility, I think make him a direction that is positive for us to consider now. You know, the whole story of the Kennedy family is just so huge. It's almost, it's difficult to grapple with because there's such amazing people and such and made such a contribution still are yes to this country today you know um in in my new book from the left uh, there's a photo of me shaking hands with john f kennedy uh-huh. i mean that talk about uh, you know propelling somebody into a life dedicated to public policy and to politics right Absolutely, and And indeed, as you mentioned, I'm sorry. No, it's just that, you know, so there was JFK and then Bobby and then Teddy and now now their kids, you know, who are are out there making such an impact on on this country. It's It's an extraordinary family, and it's really been a pleasure to spend, frankly, my entire adult life getting to know them. They have an exceptional commitment to a concept of, of responsibility, individual responsibility, and to the potential of the country that we all love. Uh, and they consistently work towards it. And it's very inspiring. And, you know, a, a family with its own wealth, and yet I don't think anybody ever doubted that their commitment to the poor and their commitment to people who uh, had, you know, had, didn't have a voice of their own was really genuine. 
Uh, unlike somebody else today who's got a lot of wealth who mouths, you know, maybe I really care for the middle class, but we know doesn't. Robert Kennedy, and I think this was part of his leadership style, was to go to where the the voiceless were to force the cameras to follow him, but to really connect on a personal and visceral level. That meeting that he had with Cesar Chavez in California. Yes, indeed. Incredibly powerful moment. Yes. Wonderful, wonderful to see you. Thank you very much. Great job on this. It's RFK, his words for our times. Certainly very, very timely. Uh, Pick it up and be inspired yet again uh, by the great uh, Bobby Kennedy. Hey, Rick, it's good to see you. Great to see you, Thanks for coming in, and good luck uh, with the book and the book tour. And when we come back, John Allen from NBC News joins us as a friend of Bill. We'll get back into politics today. Stay tuned. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of the Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Yep, it looks like she's got the votes. Gina Haspel will be the next director of the CIA, thanks to some spineless Democrats in the Senate. Hello, everybody. What do you say? It is The Bill Press Show. Here we are on a Wednesday, Wednesday, May 16, uh, Booming out to you live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, with all the news of the day and joining you coast to coast on the radio, on television, and online as well. Thanks so much for being with us. We've got uh, lots and lots to uh, to talk about from a continuing reaction to the situation uh, at the border with Gaza and the Israeli Defense Forces. Uh, death toll now 60 protesters shot and killed um, uh, that uh, reverberating in the United Nations yesterday. Yes, uh, it looks like Gina Haswell has lined up enough Democratic votes to put her over the top to be the next CIA director. And uh, hold on to that Nobel Prize because the uh, big summit talk, the big summit between North Korea and the United States may not happen after all. John Allen's here from NBC News uh, as a friend of Bill for the Hour to walk us through all the news of the day. Hey, John, what's going on? A lot. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) We're basically caught in an eternal loop of Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire, but instead of three or four events a year, it's about 40 a day. It it is that way. It really is. And the biggest news of all, of course, is that Shattered... Uh, the best book about the 2016 campaign is now out in paperback. So if you missed the hardcover, you can pick it up on the on the rebound. Not only uh, not only uh, do you get the hardcover version, you know, as paperback, but we, there's an additional afterward with Ooh. new reporting in it oh. from me and my co-author Amy Parnes. And 
to that point, I wrote exactly half of Shattered. We we have yeah. an unusual style where I write a word, then she writes a word, then I write a word. <laughs> I, I <laughs> she writes a word. <laughs> that sounds so tedious. <laughs> all right. So you see, we got lots and lots to get into here. Uh, with uh, John Allen and with all of you. Don't forget your comments. Always welcome on Twitter at BP Show. But first, this is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories making news. We go to Saline, Michigan. Saline, Michigan, where there was a going away party for a worker at MMI Engineered Solutions, but that she was not well liked by another woman there because there was a 47-year-old woman who brought some brownies to the going away party for her co-worker that was leaving, except she put a lot of laxatives in the brownies, which is something that you cannot do. In fact, it's against the law. It's against the law. Police were called uh, to talk to the woman. She lost her job and she was arrested. So if you do have a co-worker that you don't like, you can't just jack the brownies up with a bunch of laxatives. To get some sort of uh, this didn't revenge. go where I thought it was going to go. I thought you were going to say that she put a lot of you know, pot pot brownies, right? Well, she didn't like the employee, I got it. so okay. the employee. So maybe, like, if she had liked her, maybe she would have given her some pot brownies. But instead, she gave her uh, some laxative-filled brownies. Okay, so there is a new study out, the 2018 American Fitness Index, which reports the healthiest city in America, the fittest city in America, and it is. Any guesses? Uh, San Francisco. San Francisco not in the top five. Number one is Arlington, Virginia, right here just across the river what? from Washington, D.C. Arlington, Virginia, no. they say no. it's low smoking rate combined no. with no. farmer's markets, well-established parks, no. and no. Uh, no. lots of health. Uh, Arlington, we, all Virginia. Ar- no, we all know Arlington. <laughs> yeah, no, that's not number one. No, no. Arlington, Virginia, number one. Number two is no. Minneapolis, Minnesota. Number three is right here in Washington, D.C. Number four, Madison, Wisconsin. And number five, Portland, Oregon. Those is this all self-reported, five. Peter? It sounds like one of those like college best party schools where yeah. whichever, part, yeah. whichever <laughs> college the kids say, we drink the most alcohol per, per day. No, yeah. they actually took a look. Like, like I said, there was, there, there was some criteria that they took a look at. So I can see Portland, but no, not Arlington. This is the Bill Press Show. Yep, hold off on that Nobel Peace Prize. Oh, we may not need it after all. Uh, at least uh, they may not need it at the White House after all, because the North Korean U.S. summit may not happen. That's the latest. What do you say, everybody? It is uh, the Bill Press Show here on a Wednesday, Wednesday, May 16. So good to see you today. As we join you, wherever you happen to be in this great land of ours, we are right there with you online on YouTube, youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. We're looking at you on Free Speech TV, and you're looking back at us, and we're joining you on the great WCPT, the big progressive foghorn of Chicago, the greater Chicago area. Hello, hello, hello. Thanks for joining us. Join me in saying hello to uh, John Allen from NBC News here as a friend of Bill the entire hour. Hello, John. Hello. Good to see you. Welcome back. Glad to be here. Uh, And again, those just uh, picking up with uh, the second hour of the show. Uh, John Allen, we know uh, as a regular guest, as a frequent guest host here on the Bill Press Show. 
as political, senior political reporter, whatever the hell your title is at NBC News, and as co-author of the book Shattered, the best book about the 2016 campaign. First one out about it, I think, too, and the best, still the best. Thank you. You know, I, ser- seriously, I noticed uh, yesterday uh, my friend, conservative talk show host Hugh Hewitt, had a column in the Washington Post. He referenced Shattered. I was doing an interview the other night on Sirius XM. We were talking about my new book, From the Left, A Life in the Crossfire. A wonderful book. Thank you. And uh, the host said he first read about my uh, early involvement in the Bernie Sanders campaign in Shattered. So keep getting getting growing. And it was mostly, most of the parts about you and Carol Press were true, <laughs> correct? <laughs> yes. The, 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 yes. You, you're not one of those people that's going to come back to me later and say, I am angry about the Not you know, at all. There was one source that came back and said they didn't like the way that they that there was really there was some description of them that they they did not appreciate. And I won't say who it was, but uh, uh, but then they were talked down easily from the ledge because they said the rest of everything. You know, it was like no. one or two words that they were not in love with. No, no, I thought it was a great book. I told you that at the time. Uh, and the the big news is that the paperback is out now. Right. With yeah, with with more st- uh, with uh, an addition uh, with more stuff about the fighting for the the soul of the Democratic Party between uh, the Bernie Sanders folks and the Clinton folks who um, you know will uh, will have the DNC pride from their you know living but uh, somewhat yeah. diminished hands. <laughs> right, uh, I'm reading a lot about that right now. Reading Jeff Weaver's book, um, mm. the campaign manager, Bernie's campaign manager, his book. Is out or comes out this week? He'll be it's here t- tomorrow. He's here tomorrow. Yeah, he's here tomorrow in in studio. Uh, and the title of his book, "How Bernie Won." Oh wow, <laughs> which is pretty provocative in and of itself. But well, there's a lot of it about uh, how they were dealing with the very real efforts of the DNC staff to tilt this election to Hillary Clinton. They were there was no doubt they were in Hillary's pocket. Right? Wouldn't you agree? Uh, yeah, I mean the the merge between the D- the DNC and the Hillary Clinton campaign was pretty pretty strong and going on the whole time. Um, I think there's reasonable questions about why that happened. Um, I mean, I think it was a natural thing in that the vast majority of the DNC members supported Hillary Clinton. Yes, and also in addition to that, we're not big fans of Bernie Sanders because he wouldn't join the party. Right, it made it a lot more difficult for them right. to to be open to his message. Right, and um, and a lot of those members were super delegates. Right. And overwhelming. Yeah, that's right. And overwhelmingly they were they'd signed up for Hillary even before she announced for president. Yeah, and I mean the democratic so, rules are different than the republican rules and in that way it was easier for uh maybe easier for Donald Trump to take over the Republican party the way that he did. Um but also, you know, it's the votes might have come out differently if the superdelegates had been in different places, but it, it is important to remember that Clinton did win the majority of the pledged delegates, too, or, you know, one one more pledged delegate. So, there, I mean, it wasn't like she took a nomination that Bernie Sanders had won among the voters and right. reversed right. that, which also probably would have been, um, you know— up a, a, a cause for uproar within the Democratic uh, Party. I want, to, I want to come back to that in just a second, but since we're talking books and authors, we haven't had a chance just to mention today um, the death of Tom Wolfe, um, an incredibly powerful novelist. Uh, I, I just I just love even the, the titles of his books, I think, The Bonfire of the Vanities, right? It's a great title. Yeah. The Electric Kool-Aid 
acid test. And what was it? His first. I think Peter tried that a couple times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He thought, for, he thought it was a breakfast this morning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, you know, his they call it new journalism, whatever it was. It was uh, an incredible style. And uh, really, it was electric writing. Yeah. You know? uh, I mean, I think it's very rare that you find somebody who has insight into people, has insight into um, how small stories uh, tell larger stories, and who has the ability to write. Uh, Tom Wolf better at all of those things than most of the people who are better at who are good at one of them. You know, I mean, he's just uh, a cosmic all-star as far as uh, writing goes. And had the audacity to wear those white suits. White, I mean, white. Even after Labor Day. Yeah, right. <laughs> I've got small white kids shoes. and an eating problem. I would never wear a white suit. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just uh, uh, radicals. Yeah, how about this one? Radical chic and mau-mauing the flat catchers, right? <laughs> he came up with uh, incredible. So back to Bernie here for a second. The one thing that that, uh, that I I was not aware of this reading um, uh, Jeff Weaver's book. We'll talk more about with us about him tomorrow. Is that after it was clear the night of the Democrat of the D.C. primary? So this is 2016 after. Um, California, and it was clear that Hillary had the vote. There was no way Bernie right. could win. He and Hillary meet in Washington, D.C., uh, to say, okay, now how can we kind of come together? What do you want? What do you want? What do you want? What do you want? Right. And Bernie had his list, changes he wanted in the DNC and policy changes he wanted her to adapt, adopt as part of her campaign. And I hadn't read about that meeting before. That, that must have been a... Um, yeah, you know, he, he literally came with a, I think it was a legal pad or whatever it was, but literally a list. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I don't think there was any love lost between them, but I also. So it was Robbie Mook and Hillary Clinton and um, John Podesta, and then Bernie Sanders and Jane and Jeff Weaver, six of them. Yeah, my, my uh, understanding there was some one-on-one there, too. Uh, with Hillary and Bernie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's fascinating how this works. Both no love lost, but also sort of professional. I mean, you know, from my understanding of it, and I haven't read uh, Jeff's account of it yet, but my understanding is, you know, it's very sort of, um, you know, proper and correct, and there mm-hmm. wasn't any sort of, you know, personal animus going back and forth at that But moment. there was give and take. I mean, uh, according to Jeff's account, he was surprised that Hillary was more reluctant on the DNC changes superdelegates, closed primaries, firing Debbie Wasserman Schultz, then, and she was much more agreeable to policy changes like $15 minimum wage, um, putting Medicare down into the mid-50s. Know thy enemy. I mean, like, this is a, that shouldn't be surprising. What, I mean, the, the Clintons yeah. have had a, a hammerlock on the Democratic National Committee for a long time. I mean, yeah. even Barack Obama faced that. He basically had to go get uh, support institutional support from outside the DNC and inside, definitely had some inside the DNC yeah, too, but, but you know, this is a, an organization that they've, and, and by the way, when Obama became president, he started his own sort of side DNC, right? Like the OFA. He didn't use the old Clinton organ. So, didn't even try. Yeah. So, I mean, the party rules matter a lot, particularly if you represent uh, the, the sort of centrist wing. And while Hillary Clinton didn't run as a centrist, the, the 
she and President Clinton have all you know always been these um, these sort of DLC centrist type Democrats. In order for them to have a, a chance, they've got to be able to control the machinery. Um, so that doesn't surprise me. And I think what Bernie always, or Bernie and his folks always misunderstood about the Clintons was, I think you know they they saw her as a flip flopper, um, as somebody who had no moral compass at all, no compass on policy. And I think, I think the details of the policy matter less to her than the direction. Sometimes, I mean, sometimes the details matter, but mm-hmm. I think from from you know whether it's a twelve dollar minimum wage or a fifteen dollar minimum wage is less important to her than that you're raising the minimum wage and that you're moving in the right direction. So, um, and and how you implement it, and whether you're implementing a twelve dollar minimum wage that works or implementing a fifteen dollar minimum wage that does or doesn't work. So. Uh, that doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah. So Jeff says two things there that I think uh, are going to get some attention. One is uh, that he has no doubt that were Bernie the nominee, he would have beat Donald Trump, number one. And number two, no doubt that Bernie is going to run and should run and will be the nominee in 2020. What do you think of those, the two of them? Of all of those things, uh, Bernie running is the, seems to me the most the most likely uh, or, or pr- like provable. I mean, we'll find out at some point uh, whether he runs and whether giving, he wins. Giving every sign of it, he's giving every sign of it. And why wouldn't he? He, I mean, I I think I've said this before on your. I've certainly said it to you privately. Uh, a lot of Democrats in Washington want to ignore Bernie Sanders. They want to put their fingers in their ears and pretend that he doesn't exist. Uh, the truth is that he is a greater force in the Democratic Party than anybody else by leaps and bounds. He has an organization. He has a following. He got millions of people to vote for him last time. Uh, he walks into a race as, uh, for the first time in his life probably, <laughs> uh, as a front runner. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, obviously he's he's won races um, for re-election as the front runner. Yeah, but, but right. he, he walks in as, you know, the front runner. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say the favorite. You know, I wouldn't say... You know, there's exclusion to that. I wouldn't say he has more than half the Democratic Party in his camp or anything like that. But he walks in with a greater advantage than anybody else. I had not seen this number before. I was reading it last night. Forty-three In the primary, he got 43% of Democratic votes in the right. primary yeah. for a Demo- for a person who, a man who had not been a Democrat but what he needs, his entire life. What is important for him to understand as he goes forward is the same thing that I think Hillary Clinton sort of missed. Um, and Mike... My gut tells me that Bernie's uh, ego is in check enough to um, to to process this, but he got forty three percent of the votes. Some of those votes were against Hillary Clinton and not for Bernie Sanders, and therefore are loosely affiliated to Bernie Sanders and uh, could go to another candidate if he doesn't mm-hmm. try to lock them down. Hillary Clinton assumed all the people that voted for her in two thousand eight were with her. A lot of those people were voting against Barack Obama. Right. Uh, interesting primaries yesterday, which we'll get into with uh, with John and I. We'll get into a Daniel Strauss from Politico uh, in the uh, in, in the next half hour. So let's jump to uh, a couple of other things in the news today. Um, it looked like um, everything was in place. Donald Trump and uh, Kim Jong Un headed for Singapore on June 12. Donald Trump already talking about the Nobel Peace Prize. That I won't say this, he says, but everybody else says I deserve it. Um, Everybody. Then, yeah, everybody. Everybody. And then yesterday, suddenly, North Korea is saying, mm, not so fast, 
right? Maybe right. we're not going to show you, you have these military exercises with South Korea. We told you we don't like those. You're going ahead anyway. Uh, so is this whole thing falling apart, and what does that do for Donald Trump? Um, you know, it gives him an opportunity to have a dramatic save. I mean, they're going to have some meeting, I think. Who knows? Um that, that but the problem true. for Trump is the if he pulls is, it off despite this, it'll be an even bigger deal. Yeah, I but mean, it could the, also just fall apart. But yeah, I mean, the, but the problem for for him is that the uh, the key is the denuclearization, and they're saying they're not going to do that. Um, and of course, they they're saying never, they're not going to. They do were that. never going to do that. Well, it's their leverage, of course. So yeah. I mean, the deal that they would have to get to denuclearize would have to be not just like you're kind of let back into the world community economically, but you know, everybody's going to pay you a tribute of like ten trillion dollars a year or something. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, they, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. They got what? They, and by the way, this is why you try to stop Iran from getting a nuclear weapon, because then the leverage shifts. Right now, we have these economic sanctions on Iran; they're pretty crippling. Uh, or you know, we peeled them back as part of the nuclear deal, but now we reimpose them. Uh, Iran goes out and gets a nuclear weapon, and all of a sudden, our sanctions are less important. I mean, sanctions just aren't. They're not military force. They're not. Right. You're not forcing somebody. You're simply making it more painful than, for them to have their position. Once they have a nuclear weapon, they get to dictate the terms uh, in in a much uh, stronger way. Right. Um, and I'm I'm sure if somebody somebody in North Korea is saying, "Oh yeah, they want us to give up our nuclear weapons," that's what Muammar Gaddafi did, and look what happened to him. Yeah, and, and look United how States much. Are- and look how much we were. You know, willing to help. help and I him. can't prove that the United States had a role. In, I mean, obviously, the role in him, him losing power. I can't prove the United States had a role in the um, the physical desecration of Muammar Gaddafi while he was living and dead. Uh, and folks may remember how just how awful that was. Yeah. But I don't know. Like a bunch of Libyans, like kind of run into him in the desert. I mean, they they have a little like help there figuring out where he was. <laughs> Little GPS yeah. help, like maybe. I don't know. Maybe, yeah, yeah. maybe they didn't. Maybe they didn't. But it sure felt like the United States had had uh, you know sort of more of a hand in that. And if you'll recall, Hillary Clinton was in Afghanistan when that happened, uh, and she was interviewed on Fox News, and she she laughed, and she said, "We came, we saw he died," and she had just left Libya. Libya was for mission. I mean, it felt like the United States was taking responsibility for not just him falling out of power, but literally his physical death. Right. Uh, I would say no doubt. So tomorrow, John, is the uh, big anniversary. First anniversary of Robert Mueller taking over as special counsel. Uh, So beginning year two, ending year one. Um, He's still out there, and this is still ongoing, right? It's a kind of moment of reckoning for the Trump administration. I mean, that... You know, we haven't heard much about Robert Mueller in the last couple of weeks. It's been more about Michael Cohen, the end of that other investigation. Right. But the Mueller thing is um, it hasn't it's gone a, away. It's the background music. It's it's this sort of loud background music, like in Jaws, like <laughs> <laughs> foreboding. Um, yeah, no, it's a. Uh... Thank you. <laughs> just, just the one. Just the one. Oh, just one. Okay. It's what Peter listens to when he's reading the electric Kool-Aid acid test cookbook. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that, uh, but I think, you know, in terms of the Mueller investigation turning one, we're going to see uh, possibly the Trump administration continue to say what Mike Pence said last week, which was, it's time to wrap it up. You oh, know, yeah. It's been too long. Which, by the way, it could be interpreted as obstruction of justice. Certainly, 
Uh, I don't think that's, you know, what they're going to nail the Trump administration yeah. on. But the idea that you're putting pr public pressure on a prosecutor to um, to stop investigating is Who is conducting a criminal investigation against you. Right. right. I yeah. mean, it's just. Yeah. Uh, but they've been saying that for, for a long. They, you know, they said it was going to end last November. And they should have said it should have wrapped up before it started. Yeah, I know. For, forever. Um, uh, and But it's still out there. For example, yesterday. Uh, Paul Manafort was in the court saying the charges against him should be dismissed because they've got nothing to do with whatever Mueller's supposed to be doing. And the judge said, no. Yeah. I, it's not going to happen. Uh, there's going to be a lot of judgment here. There's yeah. going to be a lot of uh, a lot of conviction, a lot of uh, jail time for various people. And But the, the, the core question remains, which is two, two questions. One is, to what extent was Trump world in collaboration with the Russian government? Right. Uh, and to what extent did Donald Trump know about that? Right. Um, and, you know, so I, I think we're still a long way from um, from some conclusion by Robert Mueller. There's no public evidence of it, certainly, that Donald Trump was directing or even aware right. of uh a coordinated attempt. Right. Uh, isn't it amazing how often these Russians keep popping up everywhere, right? Uh, like the other phase of this, the Robert Mueller, I mean the Michael Cohen investigation uh, in New York. So here he's got this phony consulting company, and who is one of his clients? Da-da-da-da, here we go again, some big Russian oligarch. It's, and it's, here he's Donald Trump's personal attorney, and he's getting 500 grand from some Russian oligarch. Somebody's going to write a great piece, and it probably won't be me, about the through line from Roy Cohn and the Army McCarthy hearings and the the Hollywood hearings all the way to these guys who are, you know, protégés that are doing all this business with the Russians. It was fake back then. You know, I mean, there was obviously some communism in the United States, but it was like a fake threat back then. And now it's a real threat uh, being spurred on or, you know, I mean, you know, we'll find out what the accusations are against each of these people at some point. But obviously there is an affinity for the Russians among the protégés of Roy Cohn and their protégés. Right. And, the, and the, the question, as you were indicating, the question with Robert Mueller about in Trump world were there connections and, and how involved was Donald Trump. With the Michael Cohen thing, it's a lot seedier, right? It's the payments to Stormy Daniels, was Donald Trump aware of them? And did the two of them collude to uh, to influence the outcome of the election and not report it as a campaign contribution? Right. So that's the other thing. If there was a domestic collusion yeah, <laughs> to right. influence the outcome yeah, of the, yeah. ele the election, um, you know, that, that also can be uh, problematic. Um, yeah, I mean— uh, uh, Michael Cohen obviously had some sort of, it sounds like, I shouldn't say obviously, but sounds like he had a slush fund for fixing problems for Donald Trump that Donald Trump paid ex post facto, <laughs> right? <laughs> Which, I mean, from a legal standpoint, uh, Cohen, you know, has a chance, you know, possible, vulnerable to losing his law license for commingling his personal funds with Trump's yeah. funds, sounds like. Right. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I... What's amazing to me is that he didn't just set up multiple LLCs. So he's got the one LLC that's taking in money for the Stormy Daniels stuff and taking in money from from the outside for other things. Uh, the whole point of the LLC is limited liability corporation. 
if you're doing that kind of stuff, you set up one. For one, you know, there's one purpose, you set up one, and then you set up another one for another purpose. This isn't rocket science. Let's put it this way: there are a lot, there are a lot of people who are better at uh, using <laughs> using multiple incorporated entities to uh, to hide what they're doing. So maybe Michael Cohen needed a good lawyer like you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. I don't have a law degree. I don't, I mean, but Ben Allen just became your fixer. That, yeah, that's right. <laughs> the Bill Press fixer. I'm gonna, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna get all those people who are after Bill Press. <laughs> well, um, but um, Rudy Giuliani's got. Got all this under control, right? Yeah, he was like in the uh, second or third row of the uh, Nats game last night against the Yankees. So he seems he to was. Be, oh yeah, he was there. Kellyanne was there. Jim Paul Mary, all in the same section. Um, not you know, not all right next to each other, but all in the same section. Were you there? I was. Oh, I saw Kellyanne walk in. And then a friend of mine came running up and he said, "Hey, he's like Giuliani's down there by the dugout, and uh, and Paul Mary's like a couple rows behind him." Oh my God. Uh, Jen was in a Capitals jersey, though, so, you know, some props. As a local, some props for well, that. Well, she should have been to the Caps game. Well, I mean, fewer, fewer tickets there. Yeah, true. Yeah, okay. And um, But the game got rained out. It got rained out. Well, it, was it, it, it got suspended. It's 3-3 uh, three to three in the sixth inning. Starts up again at 5 o'clock tonight, uh, preceding tomorrow, you know, t- oh. t- tonight's scheduled Yankees-Nats game. I'm going to try to be at both, but don't tell my bosses. <laughs> <laughs> there was no, You knew there was no way that game was going to be completed last night. Oh, I knew. The that, first drop of rain. I had my six-year-old with me. First drop of rain, we left. Because I was like, there, you know, it's, once it starts, it's not going to stop. Oh, no, no, no. But So back to Rudy. Um, I mean, if you... <laughs> Uh, it, it, it is, would you just wonder what Donald Trump was thinking, that if really expected Rudy Giuliani to calm this whole thing down? And it's, it's done, he's done just the opposite. I mean, you have to be in this place where you only trust people who are very close to you. It's like the king who has, like, a bunch of test, tasters, you know, food testers, tasters, whatever. Uh, he doesn't trust a lot of people. So he has to, like, look for people within this group that he trusts, and that's a pretty small set of people who are um, sometimes, you know, share some of his flaws. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Rudy talks off the cuff. Um, and that could come back to bite the president. It's also, I, to me, the important thing about Rudy Giuliani is a recognition uh, by the White House that there are uh, separate legal and uh, public relations uh, needs. And so Rudy is a lawyer, but he's there for public relations. He's there for PR. Um, and no, I that think separation is helpful to I them. think you're right. I just don't think he's... Just- very good at PR. Good, very good at PR, right? right. I mean, it, I think he's been a disaster at PR. Yeah, he's he's if he's not a different person than he was when he was mayor of New York, um, then he did a lot better job hiding it when he was mayor of New York. Right. Uh, just a final point on Michael Cohen. The big question everybody's asking is: Will Michael Cohen take a bullet for Donald Trump, or will he just say, "Look"? I'll tell the whole truth here because I don't want to go. I don't. I don't think Michael Cohen wants to go to prison. He's got, yeah, he's got kids. He's got a family. He's like, you know, uh, you talk to people in Manhattan. um, You know, I don't travel in these circles, but like you talk to people in Manhattan who travel in the sort of, you know, the nice private school circles and everything. Like he's engaged in his community. He's known as a as a good father. Like this isn't somebody that wants to be inside a prison cell. By the way, I've gone kind of back and forth on this, right? Because he's he's one of these guys that fancies himself a little bit like 
a mafioso type, right? Like loyalty above all else. And, and I think that he considers himself to be really, really close to Trump and Trump is his buddy, even though it's sort of a sycophantic relationship. So like if it was a short stretch, I think he might actually do it for Trump. It's not going to be a short but stretch. But I don't think it's going to be a short <laughs> stretch. That, that was my next point. I don't think that what he's up against Mm-mm. is something that he's willing to do. Also, I mean, you know, Senate Republicans are very, like, uh, very certain that they're tough guys and that they're going to go in and talk to the president. They're going to tell him just how bad (laughs) it is what the White House said about John McCain. Oh, yeah. And then Mm -hmm. all of them, all of them said nothing. Uh, They've served. This guy's been in the United States Senate for 30 years, 30 plus years. And they get in front of the president, not not a single one of them no, raises, raises it. it. No, it's disgusting. There's the GOP caucus. We talked about this a little earlier. GOP caucus, uh, the member of the White House staff has really insulted and smeared one of their own. And they got the, and she has not apologized. The White House has not apologized, not apologized. And the president sits down with John McCain's colleagues and not one of them asks him, Mr. President, don't you think you should apologize for what she said? Not, I not, mean, no pride about their institution. No, no, no. I mean, you know, no guts, no guts at all. Uh, it's just, it's, it's, uh, it's shocking. It's shocking. Uh, you know, if there were times when Nancy Pelosi would hear uh, things that the Obama White House was saying about about her Democrats in the House, and the next time she saw that staffer or somebody else from the White House, oh, they yeah. get reamed. Yeah, you bet. You bet. Um, right. I mean, it happened repeatedly. Um, you know, and some less less often personal things. Some, I mean, you know, I remember political and policy things, but uh, but you know, I, I'm just I'm surprised. I don't, you know, I don't think John Boehner would have let that go. I don't think um, you know, Newt Gingrich certainly wouldn't have let that go. Of course, he was dealing with the Democratic president. Right. But I just I think one of the points we made earlier is like it, th- this is. They're following Trump's lead now. This is Trump's party, right? Which is always kind of the case when it's the president. But like, also, they don't like McCain. I mean, that's that's fair. the truth of it. Yeah. Republicans and they know their constituents don't. So, if you're the one that asked him about it in the meeting, and it leaks that you asked him about it in the meeting, you you suddenly got a problem yeah. where you're siding with John McCain over Donald Trump, which been... gets back to that question of yeah. whether there are guts in that room. Yeah. Right. Well, we know that they're not. Uh, we got to take a quick break, and when we come back, Daniel Strauss is going to join us from Politico. A lot of important primaries yesterday uh, with um, a lot to read in the tea leaves about the impact on uh, 2018 uh, and beyond. John Allen stays with us as a friend of Bill, and all of you stay with us, too. Quick break, and we'll be right back on the Wednesday edition of The Bill Press Show. This is The Bill Press Show. On a Wednesday, May 16, the Bill Press Show uh, here from coming to you live from Washington, D.C. John Allen's in studio with us from NBC News. His uh, book with Amy Parnes, Shattered, is now out in paperback. Uh, John, here's a friend of Bill uh, and um, my new book, From the Left, A Life in the Crossfire. Uh, Not a paperback yet. Uh, Hardcover, though. Uh, Check out our website at BillPressShow.com. Wanted to jump into the results of the primaries uh, last night. Daniel Strauss joining us from Politico. Hey, Daniel. How are you? Good. How are you? Great to see you. Uh, Is there any, like, one takeaway from all these primaries in so many states yesterday? I mean, there's not a single takeaway. We have, like, a handful of takeaways. 
Uh, it was not a great night if you're a member of Congress looking for a new statewide job. <laughs> and this continues at what I think might be a trend now. Um, we've seen in Indiana, West Virginia, and now Idaho that members of Congress who were supposed to win, who seemed like they had a very good shot, fell woefully short. Uh, and in Nebraska, too. And in right? Nebraska. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, Brad Ashford was looking former, for... Former congressman. Former congressman. Who lost his primary. Right. Back, right. And the rest of these people were sitting members. And it was a good night for women overall. Yeah. 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 Uh, it was a good night for women. And uh, I think we're going to see that increasingly in our politics, particularly on the Democratic side. We'll have to wait till November uh, to see how that affects the general elections. But look, women vote at a higher rate than men. At the moment that women decide that they're going to vote for women candidates, and at the moment that they have the option of doing that on a ballot, and there's not, you know, not as much difference between, uh, you know, uh, you know, when it's not, uh, it's not because they totally agree with a guy on one set of issues and totally disagree mm-hmm. with the woman. Uh, women will announce their presence with authority in our elections. It's you know more a matter of time, I think, uh, than it is a matter of if. And uh, this election season, we've seen a lot more women candidates, which means that options on the ballot. And I yeah. think we've seen uh, enthusiasm among women voters, uh, a lot of it driven by antipathy for Donald Trump, but not all of it. And Daniel, uh, a pretty good night for progressives overall, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. It's not a great night for moderates. And I saw some fretting. I picked up some fretting. Uh, from Democrats who feel like these are not super viable candidates who can assure victory in the general election. There's a a woman named Kara Eastman who had an upset in Nebraska. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, let's start there. I mean, this is a classic case of almost the the Hillary-Bernie, continuing the Hillary-Bernie. Yeah, I mean, look, within Democratic politics, Nebraska is actually kind of a Bernie state. Uh, Bernie won that in 2016. Uh, the chair, um, Jane Klebe, is sort of a, a minor uh, Bernie celebrity um, and was a big backer of his and liked Keith Ellison in the DNC race. And uh, in this uh, this race where Brad Ashford, this former congressman, was, was running for his old seat, he did not win re-election. He lost it to uh, a woman named Kara Eastman, who's more, who I guess you would peg as sort of a Bernie Democrat. Uh, an activist, so she's like yeah. a head of a nonprofit. Um, uh, you know, I I don't know as much about her as I do about Brad Ashford, but I'm going to be learning pretty soon. <laughs> yeah, but Brad Ashford had been supported by was supported by the DCCC, correct? Right. I mean, he's, yeah. he I was mean, he the, was the establishment. He had the seat and lost it by two points in the in the Trump election, and they thought we'll bring this guy back. The, the, you know, the needle will have moved more than two points in the other direction. Easy seat to pick up. And now they've got a candidate that they're less familiar with. Um, and uh, But here's the thing. I mean, there's a lot of fear in Democratic circles that they're going to nominate a bunch of people that can't win. And certainly there are places where, you know, the moderate Democratic candidate has a better chance than the liberal Democratic candidate. But it's not everywhere, uh, even in even in swing districts. Um, in some places, it's really going to be a matter of, like, who gets their, especially in, a, in an off-year election, who gets their base out more. Um, and sometimes the liberal candidate can do that better. Now, all parties are best off when they have a candidate who can bridge the gaps, of course. the ideological divides. And, you know, so I think t- sometimes parties get too much into the debate over well, it, the base it, or the moderate. Well, it, I don't know whether either of you were, uh, went out to uh, Omaha for this but or, or if at all during the campaign. But it looks like, I mean, the difference here was turnout. I mean, it was, it looks like the progressives, Bernie supported Carisman, I believe, right? Uh, yeah, I think Or at that's least right. our revolution did. 
yeah. that they did a better job of getting their people out. She won by about a thousand votes, right? It was I mean, very not, close. It was like tw- yeah. it was like yeah. twenty twenty one thousand to twenty thousand. It was, it was actually I mean, closer. Yeah. Than that. It was about a one percent, right? One and right. a half. Percent. But for right. our revolution, that's pretty good. They don't. No. They they yeah. have had trouble getting their endorsed candidates over the finish line so right. far. This right. Yeah. In this case, the, so that enthusiasm gap, I guess. Yeah, is what I mean, I'm think saying. about yeah, it. You're a former congressman that can, you know can only get. Yeah. You know, 20,000 people in the polls. That's a problem. Uh, a lot of talk about Idaho. Um, I don't know anything about her. Paulette Jordan, other than she would right. be. So she's a minor sort of liberal favorite. She would be first Native American uh, governor, governor anywhere in the country. Um, and she got the nomination over someone named A.J. Balakoff. Who is uh, he ran? Uh, he's run statewide before, and he's kind of known to what few Democrats there are in Idaho. Um, I, I just think of Idaho as deep, deep red. No. It is, and it's usually a very sleepy red state. But this time around, there were th- there was this right. divided Republican primary with three candidates. One uh, named Do- Dr. Tommy Alquist, who had been endorsed by Mitt Romney. Um, Another uh, Lieutenant Governor, Brad Little, who was sort of the protege of the uh, outgoing governor, Butch Otter. And then Rep. Raul Labrador, who you might have heard of because not too far from here, he liked to shake things up on Capitol Hill. He's a like very outspoken member of the House Freedom Caucus. And early on, it looked like Labrador was going to uh, win, but this divided primary didn't help, and he ended up being outspent and outgunned. Uh, so Paula Jordan, Paulette Jordan versus which of the three? Little. Little. Yeah. <laughs> we all just tried. I mean the worst uh, yeah. the worst name in politics right now is US representative. Yeah. That's I mean, you we know, saw like, that in the primaries uh, a week ago and we saw you know uh, where like Mike Braun, Braun and uh yeah, in beat Indiana, two, beat two Republican but, sitting Republican but congressmen. Literally, like two brand X Republican congressmen. I mean, these guys, yeah. uh, they couldn't put together, you know, a, a three minute comedy act. I mean, they're they're just dry. I mean, they're dry and they're standard issue. There were twenty five votes. I think one of the maybe it's the American Conservative. One, one of the conservative groups had done twenty five votes on their scorecard for the year. And one of these guys had voted with them 25 times and the other one 24 times. And the the only issue they disagreed on was, you know, largely insignificant. Um, and then you have this guy, Braun. And by the way, they were all trying to run to be, you know, the next Donald Trump, right? I'm the Trumpiest. Yeah. Then you have this business guy who had served in the legislature but ran as a Trump outsider. And it was, like, pretty clear that he was the Trumpiest. <laughs> and even when he was accused of having formerly been a Democrat, that made him Trumpier. Um, because Donald Trump, when he was accused of having to try to, you know, try to feather his own nest when he was in the legislature and do legislation to help himself, that made him seem Trumpier. Even you know, even the knocks against him were, were helpful. Donald Trump tweeting this morning, congratulations to Lou Barletta of Pennsylvania. He will be a great senator. He's a real Trumper, too. Uh, yeah, it Don- was Trump before Trump on immigration. Yeah, he was the one. He was the hardliner on uh, border security. Way he was the mayor of yeah. Hazleton, uh, I think, Pennsylvania, and like running for Congress in like 2002 on a platform of like, let's get all the immigrants out. Really? So yeah, yeah no, he was he he was the front edge of the wave that Trump caught on immigration. And so, he's a cup. Uh, so he'll be challenging Bob Casey. Yeah. Uh, right. But who originally? Who's win that race? Yeah. What's that? 
Bob Casey's going to win that race. Yeah. At the beginning of the cycle, it looked like Casey was in trouble. But since then, the needle sort of ticked away from Casey or from uh, the Republican nominee, whoever it would be. Right. There were several uh, congressional primaries yesterday in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. Um, Any central? I mean, said there are going to be more women in the delegation. Right. Uh, and, and, and Pennsylvania has have an entirely male congressional delegation today. Yeah. yeah. That's definitely going to change. And uh, look, uh, there. I think we were talking before I went on about just Democrats are excited about this woman named Chrissy Houlihan, who can raise a lot of money um, and has been pretty active out there so far. And beyond that... Uh, Susan Wild in Susan Pennsylvania Wild. 7. Yeah. Uh, another sort of Bernie person against a more establishment district attorney. In the I just Democratic don't. I just, and a great name. <laughs> yes, get wild. I don't. I, I just don't. I'm. I'm. I'm a little cautious about saying like this was a good night for the Bernie Kratz or good night for the moderates. Um, I think it was a good night for women and a good night if you never ran for Congress and were never in Congress. <laughs> and a bad night if you were a member. Yeah, not a great If night. you promise to never visit Congress mm-hmm. as the U.S. representative from a place, <laughs> you may win. <laughs> maybe maybe people could say, okay, I'll run for Congress, but I don't want the name. I don't want the title. People right? just they, don't. They could, yeah. They, they, yeah, right. Don't or call they, me mm-hmm. Don't call me. They can promise to introduce teleworking legislation so that they can just, uh, so they don't have to leave their district and they can vote. I guess there's there's sort of like a bipartisan um, consensus right now to just not ha- promote people in that chamber. They don't people don't feel that they deserve a new job and a new title for that body's performance in the last two years. Uh, you know, <laughs> that's a great way of putting it. And yeah, it's not just yeah. I mean, it's not just the last two years. And it, it, you sort of wonder about that over the long term. I always wonder what are the institutional costs of Congress not standing up for itself, of Congress ceding power to the presidency, of not weighing in on controversial issues, and maybe that's one of them, that that it makes I mean, it harder to get out of there. If you're, right, if you're a voter, why should you be happy either on the Republican or Democratic side, right? You're not happy with Paul Ryan because he bucks your party's president. Uh, and if you're a Democrat, you're, you there's a good chance you're not super happy with Nancy Pelosi. And there are a lot of people who feel like uh, the party's gotten too old. The party leadership has gotten too old, and there needs to be. Uh, well, new and blood. overall, I think people are uh, pissed off that they've gotten nothing. They've accomplished nothing. They right. get nothing done. I mean, and after you say that to Nancy Pelosi, duck. I know. Okay. <laughs> because uh, Luke Russert. Uh, you remember this? This is ago, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember this. He was at a press conference after. After, after I think after one lunches, he's like, you know, if you. Uh, he said I, like you're too old or something. I mean, he was. He was very direct. He was pretty direct, and she basically was like, "Sit down, whippersnapper." I mean, it was it was a moment, right? Yeah. Um, and she, I think she what she said was, "Would you be asking a man the same question?" Uh, and um, probably le- less quickly. I mean, the answer is true. Like we have had like plenty of septuagenarian leaders in Congress who are men. Yeah. Um, you know, they're not hard to find. But that's right. the, the uh, critique is not. I, I, Luke's critique is real. It was not. You're a woman and you're old. It was like, right. You've been there. Steny has been there. The it was that you're losing. Right. You're losing. And I mean, she stayed in after the 2010 election. But, Everybody thought she was going to go. And what she realized is the numbers had changed not against her, but in her favor, 
within the caucus, much like the Clintons and the DNC, uh, caring about that caucus, uh, that internal party organ, um, you know, sometimes less than the outside. Uh, she said last week, and by the way, I'm, I'm one of those who don't believe this uh, 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 anti-Nancy uh, attacks from the Republicans really helped them that much or hurt her that much. But anyway, she did say last week, I thought she really came back uh, pretty strongly when she said, no, I'm not going anywhere because I don't think there should be just five white men sitting at the table. I mean, that's a compelling response, a, right? Is. Especially this cycle. Yeah. Uh, just one quick thing on the on the congressman, uh, uh, that not being a good night for members of Congress, reminds me back in the Crossfire days, the very first time that we interviewed um, <clears throat> as a guest, Congressman Jim Trafficant, the wild Jim Trafficant, right? No, Ohio, Ohio. Ohio. the yes. Mahoning uh, Valley, the old Tim Ryan, or the, what what Tim Ryan now represents, Youngstown, Ohio. Yeah, yeah. and I just said. Um, so, uh, a congressman, and right away he said something like, don't insult me. <laughs> and I didn't know w- what he meant. I didn't know what I had said. All I had said was, uh, congressman, thanks for – and then, don't insult me. <laughs> <laughs> don't call me a congressman. Did he ask you to beam, did he ask you to <laughs> to beam, beam him up? up? Beam me up. Beam me up, Mr. <laughs> Speaker. Beam me up. <laughs> Can we read um, – Anything into results last night about um, the prospect that Democrats will take back the House? I mean, I, I, or overall, <laughs> what's your thought on it? I mean, it's Democrat. Look, the 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 map to uh, the majority in the House goes through Pennsylvania. Uh, this new map that uh, Democrats are working with, I think, favors uh, that party. Um, but you know, it's a long way toward election night in November and Trump's approval ratings have ticked up. It doesn't look like he's going to get the Nobel Peace Prize for uniting the Korean Peninsula today. So I, I but you know, there's energy out there. I, I think overall um, the party got the candidates they wanted and they, that they feel are solid enough in terms of fundraising chops and energy to pose a formidable uh, 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 bid for it. It's funny. I look at the in the other direction a little bit. Um, obviously, Pennsylvania is part of the Democratic map. I think if the Democrats are to win the House, uh, districts like Nebraska's second around Omaha, um, where you saw this upset in the primary, are, you know, if they win the House, districts like that will be part of the set that they have turned over. Uh, it's not just, if they win, it's not just going to be um, Pennsylvania, New Jersey suburbs, California suburbs, and Florida. Uh, they're going to have to get into the interior of the country a little bit. And it'll be interesting to see, does uh, somebody who's not got former congressman in front of their name, mm-hmm. um, who's a little lesser known, uh, have a better shot uh, at winning that race than the, than the sort of pre-approved blue dog uh, comeback guy, Brad Ashford? Well, short of a blue wave, which I, th- I think the idea that there'd be a uh, that this would be a wave election is maybe uh, a little hopeful thinking on the part of some Democrats. Do you think a scale of one to ten, it's a six Democrats take back the House, or a five, or a seven? I'm more in the in the five range right now. I think it's too early really? to tell. I think these races break, uh, you know, late sometimes, and I think that we've gotten so accustomed to them all breaking in the same direction because we've seen that happen a lot in recent years. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they can't break in different directions. We've seen the country. There's been 
I hesitate to use realignment because it makes it sound permanent, but we saw a Trump coalition that is different than what the Republican coalitions were before him uh, and how that affects these House races going down uh, the line. Um, you know, I think we'll only be able to judge afterward or at least, you know, right, right in the run up. But, uh, Daniel, the numbers. Right, twenty three. It seems, yeah, I, and, and I guess. Look, it's the Democratic Party; they're very good at like blowing a lead or something. So uh, we'll see. Uh, yeah, twenty three is an attainable number, and, and it looks like there are more. Forty three is the historic average that incumbent of the party with the in the first midterms loses. Right, right. So the numbers are there, unless they. Blow it, Democrats. Unless blow they blow it. Well, the, yeah. the, the I, opportunity is there. The opportunity is there. Right. Good way of putting it. Is the is even the opportunity there in the Senate? That's harder. It is. It's just look. There, Democrats have what ten seats to defend, uh, and and they have to pick up two. And they have to pick up two, but ten seats in unfriendly territory it's just uh, it's hard for me to believe that some of these names that seem familiar in the same way that mary landrew seemed impenetrable because of her sort of household name in louisiana are going to fall um six uh at the same time basically six seats that the democrats could lose i i I sort of look at west virginia indiana uh missouri montana florida what am i forgetting uh, North Dakota. North Dakota, thank you. Yeah. So six, six seats that they could lose in the Senate. There are probably three pickup opportunities, Arizona, Nevada, and Tennessee, possibly. Maybe mm-hmm. uh, Mississippi? Maybe Mississippi. I mean, you know, they get very lucky in Mississippi. Yeah. Uh, but if you look at all of those, the, the problem for them, or the big what I think is a big problem for them, is that a lot of those states where they have – Democratic senators in Republican states. Those Republican states were very Republican for Donald Trump. So the president is an unmitigated uh, positive for the Republican candidates there, and he wants to get out on the campaign trail. Um, you know, these candidates are going to have a hard time. The Republican candidates are going to have a hard, hard time blowing their advantage. Um, just structural advantage. Look at Missouri. That's a state that's been trending hard Republican for the last, mm-hmm. uh, you know, eight, 12 years or so. Um, Claire McCaskill got lucky in her last election that she went up against Todd Akin after he said the things about uh, women's bodies taking care of pregnancies resulting from rape. I mean, could she win? Sure. But uh, you have to look at the, at the state and well, say that's but, a but tough she, place for a Democrat to win. But she's had a break this year, too, with the governor. Um, it may, yeah, on yeah, trial yes, right Yes, it now. is helpful for her that the governor is on trial right now. Yep. No doubt. The question is, are voters going to separate the governor from the attorney general, who's the actual candidate against her? Does that bank shot work? Um, sometimes it works better than others. Uh, tying bill, uh, certainly, tying, certainly tying, not helpful to the attorney general that most of the attention politically in Missouri right today is on the, the charges against him. Right. I mean, we'll the attorney general's got a role in that. Yeah. I, but I think it remains to be seen how much that, that destroys him. I mean, the bigger problem for him is that he's not campaigning. The bigger problem like for him it. is that yeah, the bigger problem for him is that he's not going to, to Lincoln Day dinners and he's not able to set up donors with uh, a network, you know, outside donors with a network in his state to tap into. That's the bigger problem for him. Um, but back to the question of whether the Democrats can flip the Senate. Sure, it's possible, um, but they are more likely to lose seats than they are to win seats. 
Uh, and there have been some other breaks out there, like you mentioned Tennessee. Tennessee was off the map, and now Braden's in his running, and it looks like, again, it's an opportunity. Yeah, I, and, and it's partially, it's sort of the same story as Missouri, right? Like, Marsha Blackburn turned out to be not as strong of a candidate as Republicans had expected. Uh, in Missouri, right. Josh Hawley, like uh, like John said, he he's... He seems his campaign seems a little lethargic, and McCaskill's campaign has been aggressive this entire time and got a break in sort of the craziness of going on with the Republican governor there. Um, in uh, there's some fretting. There there's some fretting, although I'm I, I'm cautious because it is North Dakota that uh, uh, Kramer might not be as strong of a candidate as uh, Republicans had hoped for. Right. Right. No, uh, and I, I feel pretty good. I know this fretting, if you will, also about John Tester. I think John Tester fits Montana. It's going to be awfully hard to decide. I think he's it. the toughest Democrat to beat this cycle out of the ones that are in the tough right. races. God, uh, there's so much to talk about and so many of these other races I want to get into, but you can hear the music. We're out of time. Hey, guys, thanks for coming in. Daniel, great to see you. Great to see you. And John Allen, as always, Shatters is the tomorrow. Bill Press Show.